Welcome to State Lobbying Heroes Podcast, a podcast where we delve into the careers and personal life stories of some of the best and the brightest state government relations experts. I'm your host, Deepak, CEO of Legistracker. John was born in Charleston, South Carolina, but spent his childhood in Alabama where he loved being outdoors, swimming, and fishing. Coming from a family with a history of serving others, he believed in service and served as the student body secretary in high school. After high school, John deferred an appointment to West Point and opted to attend Old Dominion University on an athletic and academic scholarship. While swimming at ODU, he pursued political science and history degrees as a way to prepare him for law school. At the beginning of his junior year at ODU, tragic events of September 11th occurred and changed John's plan significantly. Passionate to serve for the country, John reapplied to the United States Military Academy at West Point. As destiny would have it, John entered West Point as part of the first class after September 11th and later graduated in 2006, exactly 95 years after his great-grandfather's Colonel John F. Waltz graduation in 1911 and 50 years after grandfather's graduation in 1956, Lieutenant General John F. Wall. John then served in the United States Army for six years as an airborne infantry platoon leader with the 82nd Airborne Division and as a Ranger platoon leader and company executive officer with the 1st Ranger Battalion. After five deployments, he left the Army, got married, and moved to Columbia, South Carolina to start law school at the University of South Carolina. What happened after the law school that made John dive into government relations? We learn about John's experiences in this next episode. Hey, John, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Let's jump into the rapid fire questions. What is the one myth or misconception about lobbying? That it's easy and, and it's straightforward, I think, is probably the, the biggest misconception. What would you be if you weren't a lobbyist? I would be probably still at the law firm practicing law. What are the three skills you think are essential for someone to be a good lobbyist? Humility, uh, strong work ethic, and integrity, mission goal oriented. What is your favorite book or hobby? Favorite hobby is to fish. I like to fish. What inspires or motivates you to be doing what you're doing? Just an overall service to the state and service to our constituents, the manufacturers in the state. And what is your favorite destination spot? Favorite destination spot would be anywhere on the water uh, with my family, you know, my kids, fishing. Who are your role models in your life? I, my, my family, my, um, my grandfather and, and my father would be my, my two biggest role models. Okay, cool. Finally, what is the one thing you want to share which no one else knows about you? Yeah, that's a tough one. I think that I think that everybody knows this, but if they don't, I'd, I'd like to profess it that I'm a very strong believer. I believe Jesus Christ is my Savior. Okay, great. So with that, let's jump into your past. Let's talk a little bit about your childhood. Where were you born, and how was your childhood like? Yeah, so I was born in Charleston, South Carolina. I was born there in Rupert Hospital and moved shortly thereafter to Alabama. My dad was a first year in law school down there. Childhood was great. Came from 
real modest means, lived in a small apartment because my dad and mom were, again, from modest means. And so I spent a lot of time with my mom when my dad was studying for, for law school and spent a lot of time swimming. My mom taught us to swim, my, my older sister and I at a young age, and just grew up in the woods and the rivers and the lakes of Alabama, outdoors, fishing and, and swimming and just doing pretty much anything outdoors. And at back then, were you interested in politics or were you a part of anything, sort of a student body or anything like that? Yeah, I was our student body secretary in high school. So I was uh, interested in serving. I come from a, uh, a long military family serving in the army. And so always wanted to pursue life of service and, and then the politics was something that has always intrigued me from high school, from the student body days. And then in law school, I served as the president of the student veterans uh, and law society at the University of South Carolina after my military time. And, and then also served as the chair of the honor council at USC Law School. Interesting. And after your high school, I see that you joined political science at the Old Dominion University. So can you tell us like, you know, what made you pick that course? Yeah, I wanted to, so I, I, again, I come from a long military family, so it's really long story, but I got into, I got an appointment to West Point out of high school, but I was doing it for all the wrong reasons, pretty much. It was kind of expected that I was gonna go there. And I wound up choosing Old Dominion because I got a free, well, not free, I got I earned a scholarship, an academic scholarship for swimming and an academic, an athletic scholarship for swimming and an academic scholarship. And so I went up there to, to swim and, and to study. And the reason I chose political science was I, I was I wanted to go to law school and and I was obviously I was interested in history and political science. So Old Dominion University that's that's in Alabama? No, it's in Norfolk, Virginia. It's the uh, largest naval base and um, so I spent five semesters there. Beginning of my freshman year, the USS Cole was bombed in Yemen and I watched that that went back into the Norfolk Harbor on a destroyer so that had a, a big impact on me. And in the beginning of my junior year, my fifth semester, I wound up tearing my rotator cuff. And then number 11th happened the next weekend. And so at that point, I was going to potentially lose my swimming scholarship. I knew I wanted to serve. So I finished that semester, went back to Alabama and uh, rehabbed my shoulder and worked at a law firm I worked at during high school. And then reapplied to West Point and was the first class after September 11th. I went there from 2002 to 2006. And funny the way it works out, the Lord has a, a plan for us all. I wound up graduating 95 years to the day of my great-grandfather, John F. Wall. He was class of 1911. And then I wound up graduating 50 years to the day after my grandfather, General John Wall, who was class of 1956. So he was my sponsor class uh, at West Point for my graduation. That's so cool. And thank you so much for your service. I really do appreciate that. So you were in the United States Military Academy, and I see that after 2006, I see that you also joined the University of South Carolina School of Law, but that was in 2012. So can you tell us, like, from 2006 to 2012, were you, did you start working somewhere? No, so you have five years of active duty once you graduate from one of the service academies. So I went into the Army and went to the 82nd Airborne Division and got my gear and 
deployed right to Afghanistan. And then I came right back from that deployment and was asked and had the privilege to try out for special operations community and wound up going to 1st Ranger Battalion down in Savannah and did four more deployments and did a total of six years in five deployments and met my wife at the time. She's my girlfriend. Uh, got out in January of 2012, got married in July of 2012, and then started a law school in August of 2012 at South Carolina School of Law. Oh, okay. Now I, that explains it. So going back to you, the political science, was there any course which you specifically liked? Yeah, I had a basic political science course that I liked. We say all my history courses. And then same at West Point, I was a, uh, a pre-law, international law major. So I had a, a bunch of great professors and, and great courses in, in Geneva Convention, the law of, more, law of Armed Conflict. Those some courses that stuck out to me. And then in law school, I really enjoyed uh, pretty much all my courses. But one that sticks out was the South Carolina clerk to the house, Charles Reed, took his legislative process class, which was phenomenal. I recommend it to anybody. And that's really all about the South Carolina specific rules about the legislative process. And that's really what first intrigued me about getting into South Carolina politics. So you were, you went and went to Virginia, then you were at the West Point. So how did you make the shift to move to South Carolina? Yeah, so I have strong roots here. My dad's family, my dad's a military brat, but his family's from Camden, South Carolina. My mom's from Charleston, and my mom and my dad both made it called Charleston. But um, my current wife, my only wife, but my wife is from Columbia, and she was best friends with my cousin. And when we decided to get out of the military, I knew I wanted to go to law school and I knew that we wanted to start a family. So that's kind of what brought me to the University of South Carolina School of Law was my wife being from Columbia. My parents were back in Charleston and then I have a ton of family in Camden, South Carolina. Okay, that explains it. So you said you were interested in law. I mean, what sparked that interest? Like, you know, after your service at the military, is there something which triggered you to say like, hey, let me try my hand at law? Yeah, I always, you know, even when I was at Old Dominion, I was a, they didn't have a pre-law major, but I was in planning on going to law school before September 11th happened. And then my father's an attorney, my sister's an attorney. I have an uncle who's an attorney. My grandfather is an attorney, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather. So, wow. so I knew, you know, I knew I, I didn't, I couldn't sustain the lifestyle I had and I knew I wanted to start a family and I was familiar with law and that was kind of my goal and my trajectory before the military, after I served, before I served, and then after I served, I just wanted to pursue the law degree. Okay. So if you had to like summarize your experience at the military and if there was one skill which you which you got or gained from that exposure, what would that be? I think it would be a mix of humility and, and leadership. And I think those two go hand in hand. In, in the military, you're, you're taught to obviously be humble, be a team player, you have to be a leader. But one of my favorite pieces of scripture is, he who mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's James 4, 6. And as a leader in the military, and I was an officer, the guys do the heavy lifting. So 
Um, they're the ones that deserve all the credit. So I think humility is is one of the biggest traits I learned besides leadership. And I think those two go hand in hand. That's an excellent point. So at the School of Law, that was from 2012 to 2015. And did you get that in a specific area as far as like the law goes? Was it corporate law or anything like that? No, it was no specialized d- degree. It was just a JD, but um, I clerked at some law firms and was, was torn between whether to do litigation or transactional work. And I really enjoyed economic development and doing tax incentive type of work. And that led me to a career at the law firm doing that type of work. And a lot of, a lot of my clients that I worked with and the clients I worked with at the firm were manufacturers. And I got a little bit of legislative exposure when I was at the law firm, helping out to some of those manufacturers as well. And so when this opportunity came at the Manufacturers Alliance to be the general counsel, to use my legal talents, as well as to learn and to build upon uh, Charles Reed's legislative process class, it was a great opportunity for me. So after the School of Law, during that time, did you, did you say, were you an intern? in any of the corporate corporate law firms or anything like that? Yeah, I, I clerked for several different law firms in town, mainly doing a wide variety of things. And then I also worked during my, worked during the summers uh, after my first year and then second year. And then I worked as much as I could during law school for several different law firms. Part of that was because I wanted to continue to build my skills. And then also I had some financial responsibilities because the Lord bless my wife and I with uh, our daughter Piper during law school, my, my second year. So there's some financial needs there as well. Oh, okay. So let's touch base on each of these internships you had, maybe just briefly. So let's say at the Ellis Painter, Rattree and Adams LLP, you were a research assistant. Do you recollect anything? What sort of I mean, how did you get that? And then what kind of responsibilities did you have? Yeah, so at Ellis Painter, Rattree and Adams, that was actually before law school. And I you know, was still stationed in Savannah, and that law firm was in Savannah, so I knew I was going to law school. I'd have been accepted to USC, so I worked there for several months just uh, doing a lot of real estate-type work for them and just to really kind of get my feet wet, so to speak, and make a little money and uh, prepare me for law school. Oh, I see. Okay. So after that, I see in 2013, you were a summer associate at Hainsworth Sinclair Boyd. How did you get that and what was that about? Yeah, so I had the fortunate opportunity to work with Hanger Sinclair Boyd and it was great. And I thought I wanted to be a litigator, but I went there and met some of the fine attorneys, Gary Morris, Edward Quarters, and uh, Will Johnson, and they did tax and economic development type of work. And so I fell in love with that. And, and that's kind of when I shifted gears in my mind away from litigation. I thought litigation would fit me because it's like going to battle. You have to be prepared, think on your feet. You know, the enemy always has a, has a counter, counter maneuver to, to your actions and the best laid plan, like in combat, goes to hell in a handbasket, so to speak, once the first shot is fired. And I, I really gravitated towards tax and incent, tax incentive economic development type of work when I clerked at Hanger Sinker Boyd. Oh, interesting. And how did you get that position? Just interviewed and uh, we had some family friends or my wife had some family friends that worked there. So that helped out too. And just working hard during law school, making good grades and then leveraging the uh, 
the existing attorneys that uh, my wife's family knew at the firm. Yeah. So looking back, would you say if you had to do this all over again, now that you know that you wanted to be, you want to be in government relations, would you say getting a degree in law, is that something which you would recommend others as well? I, I definitely would because you have to understand it's not, a, it's not essential, but you have to understand the law and, and how to read the law and have to understand that every word matters shall or should uh, makes a big difference when it comes to the law. And, and in order to shape policy and to change the law, I feel like it gives you a big leg up if you, if you really understand the, the statutes and, and, and the law. Again, in 2013, I see that uh, you were a law clerk in Sweeney, Wingate and Barrow. So what was that about? Yeah, that was a, another work during the school year type of opportunity for me. And I, I still was kind of unsure. Some folks have told me that litigation really fit my, my skill set. And they're a big litigation firm, a defense firm, very Christian-based firm. And I had a lot of respect for the attorneys there. And so I, I went there to, to, one, get more experience, but also, two, to make sure that litigation was not the proper path for me. And then you, I've also seen that you are a somewhat associated at the Nexon Pruitt. So how did you get that position and what was that about? Yeah, so uh, Nexon Pruitt is, uh, has a phenomenal economic development tax incentive team. And so I, I kind of hedged my bets and there's only very few positions coming out of law school at one of the premier firms. And so I split my last summer in law school between Nexon Pruitt and uh, Hainsler Sinclair Boyd because they both have really strong economic development practices, among others. And, and so that, that's the reason that uh, I chose Nexon Pruitt and uh, pursued my opportunity at Hainsler Sinclair Boyd. Oh, interesting. So I see from 2015 was when you graduated and then you got a position as an associate at Nexon Pruitt. So that, was that a full-time position? It was a full-time position, and I started in August of 2015 after I took the bar exam, and I primarily focused on tax and economic development work, economic development incentives, and then also did a little bit of commercial real estate and corporate work. Yep, so that's what I did there. So if you had to summarize all your experiences with being an associate and a law clerk while you were getting your law degree, can you tell me what one skill you gained from all of those experiences? Yeah, I think the biggest skill that I, that I learned was how to uh, really get in and study the law and know the law and, uh, and the work ethic that continued over from the military and then now came over to this practice here at the Manufacturers Alliance. Mm -hmm. So at, as an associate with the Nexon Pruitt from 2015 to 2018, can you talk a little bit about, was there any interesting or challenging projects you worked on? Yeah, most of that, most of that is, is, you know, I, I can't speak because of client confidentiality, but I worked on some, some big economic development projects with some manufacturers and it helped me hone my skills. And also I, I worked on some, some legislative political matters too. And, and that kind of got me interested as well in the Manufacturers Alliance. And the, the core five policy areas of the Manufacturers Alliance are workforce development and education, 
tax and economic development is the second one, environmental issues, energy and infrastructure, and all, and, and then legal reform and employment issues. But re really those six policy areas of the Manufacturers Alliance, all those are crucial when you look at economic development and, and a company choosing whether to expand their existing operations, continue their business in the state or, or for a new business to relocate to South Carolina. All six of those key areas, policy areas, the manufacturers lines, those have to be met in order to have a successful business climate here in the state. So, so 2000, when was the first time you stepped your foot at the SC State House? That's a good question. Uh, when I was at Hangsler Sinclair Boyd, they have a lobbying firm called Copperdome, and there's a gentleman named Carl Blackstone and Billy Ruth and uh, Jeff Thordall who are a part of their team or were part of their team at the time. So they kind of took me under the wing and gave me a little bit of initial crash course building upon Charles Reed's Charles Reed's class. I mentioned his, him, his name a lot. You probably think he's one of my role models, and he and he is as well. But um, the first time I stepped foot over in the state house was when I was at Nexon Pruitt, and but the first time I really got into the lobbying world was not until I came over here at the South Carolina Manufacturers Alliance, and it was relatively new to me. Our CEO Sarah Hazard used to have my position, the vice president of government relations here at the Manufacturers Alliance, so she's really mentored me and kind of showed me the rope, so to speak, over at the state house. Interesting. So all your experience has been so far on, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you had more exposure on the legal side of aspects of it. But with this position as a general counsel and the VP of government relations at the South Carolina Manufacturer Alliance, this is when you're, you stepped into the foray of the government relations more of it. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. And, so and really August 8th, 2018, of when I when I came over here and, and left Nexon Pruitt was when I first really got my true taste of being a lobbyist. Interesting. And what do you like about it? What do you like about government relations? I like that every day is a new challenge. It's a very, I mean, it's a very dynamic environment. I love talking to people, building relationships. And I love our manufacturing members and, and taking care of them, but I'm kind of like a scout and using military terms. I'm sorry, I can't get away from it. You're, you're there to pass favorable legislation that's beneficial to, the, to, my, to your constituents, which in my case is the manufacturers of the state, but also you're the voice of manufacturer. You're impacting not only businesses, but everything you do affects somebody. And, and you know, you're kind of the eyes and the ears reporting back and identifying problems that, that could arise. So not only are you playing offense, but you're playing defense. And it's a constantly changing battlefield, if, you, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. And would you agree that government relations is, is all about networking and relationship building? Yes. Uh, well, not all about it. That's a key component of it because you have to, you have to carry yourself with integrity and, and be honest and be humble and develop those relationships, which is hard to do. But you also have to be knowledgeable and be a resource to the legislatures legislators and communicate effectively to them but also back to your membership about what's what's going on on the battlefield so to speak the military it's very much the term you teach you it's a 
crawl, walk, run type. You just can't come in, guns are blazing, and it's more, more of a look and listen at first. And then you build those relationships, you understand the issues, you understand the pitfalls, understand really how the whole system works. You have to know the rules, you have to play by the rules, and you have to use them to your advantage. It's a culmination of all that, but the personal relationships are definitely crucial because if people don't trust you, they don't, they can't rely on you, then you're, you're toast. Can you maybe highlight one of your highest achievements in terms of policies you've worked on so far with the SCMA? Yeah, the, the, the biggest thing last session was we were able to get a business license tax reform bill passed which makes it easier for businesses to comply with the various different local business license tax ordinances. Uh, it allows them to, uh, not only manufacturers, but businesses, all businesses, to, to comply easier and really focus on doing their job and running their business instead of uh, worrying about all the different paperwork and filing requirements that come with maintaining a business license tax. And then secondly, unemployment insurance was a was a huge issue. The unemployment insurance trust fund took a huge hit when, when COVID hit and we were very thankful and, and, and appreciative of the General Assembly allotting $920 million of Federal CARES Act money to replenish the trust fund to avoid on average double unemployment insurance tax increase for 2021 on all businesses. So that would be a close second as far as my legislative success and my in my short career so far. Excellent. And have you ever felt that there was a time that politics took a front seat to policy? In South Carolina, we're very fortunate that a lot of a lot of people, this isn't you hear it a lot and it's true. A lot of people put their internal politics aside to do what's best for the state. There's a lot of people on, on the Democratic side and the Republican side that that work together to get things done. It's not like that in every state. It's definitely not like that in DC sometimes. And we are just a state focused organization. So we only focus on state state policy. And I, I think that you've got a fair shot. I've got a fair shot, and anybody has a fair shot to to influence the the legislators and the politicians, and they really put everything to the side to do what's right. And I'm very thankful and blessed to to be in a situation like that. That's awesome. And looking back now at your career, you had a diverse set of experiences. Can you, like, if you had to give someone else advice? Would you say what would be the first step they should take if they would like to get into lobbying? First step that I would suggest is to go over and, and experience it. Just go see the South Carolina General Assembly or whatever legislative body you're you're trying to to target and see how see how it works. And it's not it's not all sugar and roses and everything. There's definitely long days and long nights, but I would recommend that you one, go and observe the process, eat to see if it fits your personality, but also two, so you can get an understanding of what all it entails. And then after that, if it, if it still intrigues you, I would recommend seeking out a mentor and, and trying to be a page or work on staff over there so you, so you really get inside the belly of the beast and, and, and see how it works. And I think that concludes the second section of the 
podcast. The final section is where I stop talking and I let you give any sort of advice you would like to give for anyone who wants to get into this field or like, you know, in general, you want to talk about yourself or your firm or where do you see yourself in the future? Anything goes here. Yeah, I think in politics, it's important. Like I mentioned, you need, you need to be humble. You need to work hard and you need to accomplish your mission, your objective, so to speak but do so with integrity because if you lose your integrity, then uh, it doesn't matter about the end result. You might win the battle, so to speak, but you'll lose the war and people will always remember that. And, and all of that goes with being, being humble. You shouldn't necessarily be focused on who's going to get the credit at the end of the day. As long as you accomplish your mission and you do it with integrity, then so be it. That, then, then I think it's a success. You have to, in the military, we're always taught contingency planning. Things are going to go wrong. You're going to make mistakes. Things are going to happen that are beyond your control. You, you just, you just got to be flexible. Again, you know, the best laid plan always goes, goes to waste with the first gunshot. So you have to, you have to be forward linked, forward thinking. You have to be prepared. You have to work hard. You have to prep the battlefield, so to speak, to set yourself up for success. But in that, just like you're going on a mission, like when I was in the Ranger Battalion, you know, you had your mission, you had your no-fail objectives, and then things are going to come up that are going to distract you away from your main objective and taking you taking you away from your mission. So you just have to be true to who you are and remember what your priorities are. Plan for those contingencies because things will happen that, that'll take you off course. But you have to be forward thinking and prepared for those contingencies or else you're not going to react appropriately um, when it comes when it comes to game time. And then you have to recognize the tremendous amount of responsibility that you have, not only to your constituents, but to, to the state and, and the overall. In my, in my case, it's it's the business community. It's the manufacturers first and foremost, but it's the business community. But also, you can't be unreasonable. You have to be willing to compromise and you have to be, a, be able to negotiate. And then you have to be able to know what your no-fail mission is and, and obviously not compromise your integrity. Because again, if you do that, you lose, you might win the battle, but lose the war. So those are kind of um, some, some, some of the thoughts. And again, a lot of people get themselves into trouble. And, and again, I'm new at this, so I'm very much still... In, in the, I guess, the walk phase. I'm, I'm not at the crawl phase. I'm still in the walk phase. You have to know your limitations. You have to be able to relay your positions accurately and fairly, but you have to realize sometimes people are not going to agree with you, and that's okay. We're not always going to agree. God made us all different. There are certain people that you're never going to change their minds on a particular issue that is highly ingrained and distilled in their values or, or their circumstances. And they have constituents to answer to, just like I have constituents, the manufacturers to answer to. But as long as you're respectful, honest, and you're humble, and you're clear and concise with, with your information and your position, then you, you should be successful. They're not, they're not these legislators, they, they have to deal with not just my six, our six, the Manufacturers Alliance, policy, they got to deal with anything from anything under the sun, right? A lot of the stuff, legislation that they're discussing doesn't, doesn't necessarily impact or fit in, fit in our six key policy areas. But 
you always have to be alert. Again, going back to the, my scout analogy, anything can happen. It could be a piece of legislation that you think is irrelevant, and then it could be amended and changed, and all of a sudden it could be catastrophic to constituents, the manufacturers in my case. So you always have to keep your head on the swivel. You always got to be prepared to react to contact, again, using the military term, but you always got to be you got to be prepared, and it's a huge responsibility. It, it can be stressful because one little thing, if you miss it and don't raise it and don't make your voice heard, it can be catastrophic for you and for your constituents. Just being proactive and, and educating legislators, I, I say educating, that you making sure that legislators know your position is, is crucial and then staying alert. In the military, again, you say, stay alert, stay alive, and that's very much true. And, and the legislative world as well. John, you're definitely the epitome of uh, humility. And with your work ethic, I can clearly see that you'll be up and running pretty soon from the crawling state. Well, thank you again, John, for being here. I really do appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And, and I appreciate the kind words. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. There you go. Another interesting career path to lobbying explored with John's experiences. Thanks so much for listening and keep smiling.